Bobby Nemec. I'm Brian Hotelling. That's John Dressel on the piano. And recording live on the campus of Post University, this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only people who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson. You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. With each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, pick up a pitchfork, step onto the treadmill, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. The views and information provided in this podcast episode do not reflect post-university programs and or outcomes directly. Please be advised that although we do try hard not to be graphic in our content, this is a difficult story to listen to. And I think I should prepare you for that. I'm choosing to tell you a story of calamitous waste, callous disregard for life, and epic incompetence. It is a tragic and frightening story, and every bit of it is true. But if I'm going to tell you how it happened, I'm going to have to tell you some of the details. And they are the stuff of nightmares. If you're going to listen on, please know that the story is in these details. If at any point you feel like this is too much for you or your listening companion, please know that nobody will judge you for stepping out. If it helps you to know this, it has a bit of a happy ending. Now that I've prepared you for the adventure, I can begin the story of... Episode 12, Into the Mouth of Hell. The valley was longer than it was wide. Batteries of stationary guns were established along the length of it, positioned so that no troops could advance down the valley without being exposed. At the far end of the valley, over a mile away, was a battery of eight cannon. Poet laureate of Great Britain, Alfred Lord Tennyson, immortalized this scene in words that schoolchildren across Britain have memorized and recited by rote ever since the news of it reached the shores of that country in the fall of 1854. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. The man at the head of the brigade, wearing the uniform of a major general of the British cavalry, did not get along at all with the man who was commanding the action. In fact, their heated relationship has become legendary. The major general was following orders as he rode to the fore. He knew all too well what was about to happen, and even in the face of his seething hostility for the man who had given the orders to advance, he raised his saber and the trumpeter sounded the command to move off. They began a slow advance, first at the walk and then at the trot, because they had so much ground to cover before the charge began. It was stunning. 
The men rode in perfect ranks, knee to knee, their uniforms, blues and reds and grays, with buttons and braid glinting in the sun, were backed by the flags of the several units, as well as the British Union Jack. The plumes above the soldiers' helmets and the pennon on every lance snapped in the wind as the brigade moved forward. As they progressed, they moved from trot to canter, through the smoke from the guns on left and right and between the explosions in the field. Forward the light brigade! Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldiers knew somewhat had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. As the brigade picked up speed, the bugles sounded the charge, and the horses began to gallop at top speed in close ranks down the valley toward the guns. Horses began to fall by the dozens, casting their riders off among flying hooves. Unhorsed men found loose horses and remounted. Smoke and dust clouded the field, making it almost impossible for the men to see what they were doing. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, Cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the six hundred. Even so, the charge met its target. Cannon fired and shells exploded, but the light cavalry rode boldly into the smoke. Sabres slashed and cut, and lances found their targets among the men behind the guns. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered, plunged into the battery smoke, right through the lines they broke, Cossack and Russian, reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they row back, but not, not the six hundred. Many of the horses that fell died on the spot. Others had to be put out of their misery because they were so badly injured. The loss of life was simply stunning. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death back from the mouth of hell. All that was left of them, left of six hundred. It's been said that the man directing this action seemed oblivious to the carnage, but the other, the man whose saber signaled the bugler, was a consummate horseman, and he was absolutely outraged at what he saw. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade, noble 600. You may have been told about this scene in school. You may don't know some lines from Tennyson's poem. What you may not know is that I'm not just describing the charge of the Light Brigade, the controversial charge that was part of the Battle of Balaclava during the Crimean War. That took place 169 years ago today, on October 25th, 1854. The scene I just described to you also comes from the making of the film The Charge of the Light Brigade in 1936. Both of these stories, the one about the military action and the one about the film, are tragic, and they both reflect the evolution of the human-animal relationship 
over the last 200 years. Horses ceased to be tools of real war at some point, but they were still used as tools in make-believe war for a long time to come. And while this was better, it was a long way from good. Let's put this in context. In the late 1700s, the Russian Empire under Catherine the Great seized the peninsula of Crimea from the Ottoman Empire, often referred to historically as the Turkish Empire. This was somewhere in the middle of a long series of Russo-Turkish wars that extended from the 1670s to the 1870s. Their goal was to expand the Russian perimeter as far as possible. Sound familiar? Many of these wars produced very little progress for the Russians, but the first major one ended in 1774 with the Treaty of Kuchukainarja. This treaty allowed Russia to maintain a fleet on the Black Sea and to control Orthodox Christian subjects in Ottoman territory, which was largely Islamic. Several large pieces of land were also given to Russia at that time, including the Crimean Peninsula. Now, if you follow today's news, you may have learned a bit about Crimean history, but I'll give you a little overview just to bring us all to the same place. The region of Crimea is a large peninsula that juts out into the northern reaches of the Black Sea, and it forms the Azov Sea on its eastern side. By total area, if Crimea were a U.S. state, it would be the 11th smallest a little bigger than West Virginia in size. It sits on the southern edge of today's nation of Ukraine and was made a part of that country after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. In 2014, Crimea was once again forcibly captured by Russia and is under dispute in the current war in Ukraine. Roughly clockwise around the Black Sea from Ukraine and from Crimea, Today's map shows Russia and Georgia to the east. Turkey comprises the entire southern coast of the sea, and Bulgaria and Romania lie to the west. It is a key transportation route as it lies between Europe and Asia, receiving water from several rivers and outflowing to the Mediterranean Sea. At the time of our story, the Ottoman Empire was known by many as the sick man of Europe. By the middle of the 19th century, it was in decline from a previous time of much greater reach, but it still possessed the southern and western shore of the Black Sea, and Russia held the north and east. Orthodox Russia held some degree of authority over Christians, even outside its borders, as a result of the Treaty of Kuchukainarja, a hundred years prior. But in Roman Catholic France, Napoleon III was not about to be pushed out of the way regarding the church, and there was tension in the air. Through diplomacy, the French managed to sway the Turkish to align with their interests. This led Russia to take military action, and they invaded Ottoman territory on the western edge of the Black Sea. Now, this would jeopardize British and French trade routes to India, which was, of course, very important for them. In fact, by this time, India itself was already establishing itself as the jewel in the crown of the British colonies. And so it was that in March of 1854, Britain and France allied with the Turkish to declare war. And before long, the state we now know as Italy would also join the alliance. 
The war itself was mainly an effort by these allied forces to drive Russia back out of what was considered Ottoman territory and to protect trade routes through the Mediterranean. But the fighting mostly happened in Crimea. I guess that's why it's known as the Crimean War. This historical period was really the height of the era of colonial empire around the world. Russian, Ottoman, British, Austrian, Spanish, French. As often happens with the past, this period was later romanticized in entertainment. It had a bit of a moment during the 1930s, during the heyday of the Hollywood movie studios, when adventure stories about the British Empire were box office gold. In 1935, Paramount Studios released the successful movie Lives of a Bengal Lancer, which inspired its competitor, Warner Brothers, to produce a film called The Charge of the Light Brigade, starring David Niven and the proven duo of Olivia de Havilland and Errol Flynn. Flynn and de Havilland had starred together a couple years earlier in Captain Blood, and the studio was stacking its aces on this production. Warner Brothers ultimately spent $1.2 million on the production, which was shot entirely in California, including all of the location shooting. This was quite a lot of money at the time, though in 2023 dollars, it's only about $26.5 million, which is pretty low compared to today's blockbusters, which can easily run that five times that much to produce. Ultimately, The Charge of the Light Brigade was decently successful at the box office, the production won an Academy Award for assistant director Jack, Jack Sullivan, and it earned nominations for Nathan Levinson's sound recording and Max Steiner's musical score. If it sounds to you as though the movie was a winner, sit tight, because that's only part of the story. When I thought about a country going to war before the modern era, it never really occurred to me how they would get there. I mean, I guess I thought about military action across borders and troops marching or being transported across land. Of course, that's silly if you think about it for more than a minute, but I guess I never did. So in the middle of the 1800s, when Britain and France decided to go to war on the edge of the Black Sea, it was no small feat of logistics to get the troops, their equipment, the cavalry's horses, the supply horses, oxen, and mules, and the provisions for both human and animals to the war. Steamships were in fairly common use by this time, but not in common supply. So when war was declared and the troops mustered for departure, the decision was made to take these thousands of men and thousands of horses on sailing vessels. Traveling by sail would more than double their transit time five weeks, or even much longer, to make the 3,400-mile journey. This was hard enough on the men, who knew where they were going and why. But for the horses, it was the first phase of a long and progressive terror. Let me start by describing the accommodations that they had in the hold of the ship. First, it's dark and poorly ventilated, absolutely foul. Stalls are constructed for each horse to have a narrow standing stall, not unlike what they might have today in a trailer. There is a manger in front, chest high, and their heads are tied up so they will stay in place. Their tails face the hull, and the two rows of heads face the center, with an aisleway between. 
officers' horses had a little more room in their stalls, but this only meant that they needed to be supported by slings to stay on their feet at sea. The Light Brigade alone would fill 25 sailing vessels departing Portsmouth in the spring of 1854. Each horse was swung aboard the ship using a sling. In the book Hell Riders, The Truth About the Charge of the Light Brigade, author Terry Brighton quotes a private of the 13th Light Dragoons who described the boarding process. Quote, Each horse was led up the ship's side, which lay close along the quay. The sling was placed beneath the horse's belly and fastened to the tackling on the mainyard. The word was given to hoist away when about a hundred convicts manned the large rope and running away with it, the poor trooper was soon high in the air, quite helpless. He was then gradually lowered to the main hatch, which was well padded to prevent accidents, until he arrived at the hold, which was fixed up as a stable, each horse being provided with a separate stall. End quote. As you might predict already, the horses did not handle this journey well, nor did the men. Today, when a horse has to be moved by a sling, they are fairly heavily sedated to minimize their reaction. In 1854, they had no such luxury. By the time they landed on Russian soil, the British alone had lost 100 men from service to either death or hospitalization, and several hundred horses were either dead or unfit for duty. Mrs. Fanny Duberly, the wife of Captain Henry Duberly, went along with the troops to go watch the war as though it was some sort of curious spectator event. They allowed one guest for every six men. She took her maid, Captain Duberly's servant, as well as their own five horses. Quote, A fourth horse died last night. They tell me he went absolutely mad and raved himself to death. The hold where our horses are stored, although considered large and airy, appears to be horrible beyond words. The slings began to gall the horses under the shoulder and the breastbone, and the heat and the bad atmosphere must be felt to be understood. Every effort to alleviate their suffering is made. Their nostrils are sponged with vinegar, which is also scattered in the hole. End quote. That was only one week into the journey, and on fairly calm seas. When they sailed into a storm, it would get worse. One lieutenant described it this way, quote, As the vessel rolled from side to side, it pitched all the horses forward off their feet against the manger. They were absolutely frantic. Horse after horse got down, and soon as one was, with great difficulty and danger, got up, others went down. Some were lying underneath other horses who were kicking and plunging upon them. Such a fearful scene I wish I never witness again. End quote. This dreadful rocking of the ship was constant through day and night as long as the storm would last. The heat was intolerable. Horses who broke their legs or went mad were shot and thrown overboard. In all, the light brigade alone lost 57 horses at sea, and most of the rest were declared unfit for duty. They eventually made it to the port of Varna, 300 miles up the western coast of the Black Sea from Constantinople, where the accommodations were absolutely inadequate. The port was too shallow for the ships, and so the horses had to be rowed ashore. Not surprisingly, they reacted badly to this, and injuries to both men and horses were common. By the time they arrived at Varna, the Allies numbered 50,000 men, overrunning the port's small village. In the face of 
oppressive heat and inadequate sanitation, dysentery spread. And for the first time, cholera, which is spread through contaminated food and water. Symptoms are large amounts of watery diarrhea, vomiting, and muscle cramps. Untreated, it can lead to severe dehydration and ultimately death. It's a pretty slow and awful way to die. It could be said that the British Light Brigade faced three enemies in Crimea, the Russians, the disease, and the incompetence of their own military operation. Much has been written, and I could go on at length, about the many ways in which the British Army botched one operation after another in this war. But I'll pick some of the big ones. To become a commissioned officer in that time, one had to be a member of the aristocracy. One was also required to pay the cost of recruiting, training, and clothing one's unit. In addition, the only men who had seen recent military action were those who had served in India. They were called Indian officers, and they were discriminated against, keeping them out of any roles with meaningful authority, likely because they might show up the inexperience of the ranking officers. As a result, again and again, troops were kept in places they should leave, sent into places they should avoid, retreat when they had the chance to rout a weakened enemy, and in one critical instance, the story I'm sharing with you now, to charge in a completely wrong direction. Three men were pivotal characters in this charge. The highest ranking was Fitzroy James Henry Somerset, the first Baron Raglan, who was named commander of the British troops in the Crimea. Lord Raglan had been military secretary to the Duke of Wellington in the Napoleonic Wars, but had lost an arm at the Battle of Waterloo and hadn't seen action for 40 years. Repeatedly, General Raglan would station himself in an awkward or ineffective location, give contradictory orders, and demand utter adherence to his orders when it was clear that officers in the action should have more discretion. Second in rank was George Charles Bingham, the third Earl of Lucan. He was one of the most reviled men in all of Britain, being well known for evicting mass numbers of his tenants during the Irish potato famine. Lucan? had also been out of military service for decades. It was said that he was so out of date as a commander that he used the wrong commands for the troops during drills, and they had no idea what he was directing them to do. He also tried to reteach them his commands so he wouldn't have to learn theirs. Third of the key figures in this story was James Thomas Brudenell, 7th Earl of Cardigan and Brigadier General of the Light Cavalry. Lord Cardigan was Lucan's brother-in-law, and the two men detested each other as only rival in-laws can. Cardigan was imperious, selfish, and demanding, and he didn't take the idea of being Lord Lucan's subordinate sitting down. Common opinion held that the hostilities the British would face with the Russians would be nothing compared to those between their lordships Lucan and Cardigan. That assessment would prove ironically accurate. To sum up, nobody on the ground who had any power to make even the most minute decision knew what they were doing. They had neither experience nor education in military matters, and they were appointed only because of their aristocratic privilege. However, that doesn't mean that all was lost, because the other sad truth is that the troops themselves were extraordinary. 
they were recklessly brave, dashing, and absolutely certain that they would win. Everyone knew that their fighting capability, when engaged, was outstanding. Cecil Woodham Smith, from the book The Reason Why, The Story of the Fatal Charge of the Light Brigade, said, quote, In this spirit, thirsting for military glory, filled with confidence and excitement, as if indeed going to a fox hunt, the British Army embarked for war. End quote. Late in the summer, with an army besieged by disease and discord, poorly supplied and equipped, and commanded by unprepared and unqualified officers, General Raglan made the decision to invade a hostile and totally alien country. By sea, with no reconnaissance to plan for the landing. And so the men, the horses, and the cholera got back in their ships at Varna and crossed the Black Sea to the Crimean Peninsula, with no idea where they would land or what they would find when they got there. Sadly, there wasn't enough room on board to take everyone. Woodham Smith tells the story of the Samoon, quote, It proved impossible to accommodate both the army and its equipment, the order being given to strip everything to the bone. Tents, medicine chests, and ambulances were carried ashore, Animals had to be left behind. Cavalry officers were parted from their charges. And Lieutenant Sager had to leave his favorite, Jerry. At the last moment, a depot was hastily formed, while 1,200 officers' horses and 4,000 baggage animals were left. Most of these, including Jerry, starved to death. End quote. There was a wait of several days for the 600-ship convoy to load and assemble. While they were waiting, those who died of cholera were tossed overboard into the harbor, with weights tied to their feet to pull them under. This worked okay at first, but as the bodies began to decay, they would float back up to the surface, bobbing head and shoulders above the water in the bright sun. The stench was horrific. What horses they had left were in bad shape. They had endured the first voyage, been overworked and underfed for months, and those that could fit on board were now back in the ships packed even tighter than before. One ship put a hundred horses in the space designed for 56, and when they encountered a storm en route, 75 of them were lost. When they made their landing in Crimea, after another disorganized disembarkation, they were again decimated by disease, dehydration, and exhaustion. This grand army of Britain was so close to the edge of survival that even as they began their march into Russian territory, soldiers were simply falling to the ground and being left for dead. From their landing at Kalamata Bay, they headed towards Sebastopol, the naval port that Raglan planned to seize. The week-long march brought them across four rivers, the Bulganek, the Alma, the Katilia, and the Belbek, and each one had to be crossed by force against enemy protection. To understand how this journey would affect the future battle at Balaclava, first remember the bitter, bitter rivalry between Lucan and Cardigan, and consider the frustration that all of the cavalry were feeling. At each crossing, the cavalry would push the Russians back and take the river, but as they did, General Raglan would call them back from pursuing the scattered enemy. 
rather than seizing advantage and pushing, pushing on to disable the opposition, he would order Lucan to call his troops back from what all the men knew was a better tactical action. This allowed the Russians to regroup and regain order. As they reached the final river crossing on the 24th of September, tempers were high, and the horses of the Light Brigade were desperate with thirst. General Raglan had sent them forward the day before without allowing time to water, and Lucan was by this time in the position of enforcing Raglan's orders to the letter, regardless of cost, in the name of discipline. Quoting Troop Sergeant Major Smith, quote, Opposite the part we were fording sat Lord Lucan, storming and threatening that he would flog any man who attempted to water his horse, so that the men who passed over directly opposite him had great difficulty in forcing their horses through the water, as they plunged their heads in eager to drink, not having been watered since we left the Alma. What could have been Lord Lucan's reason for this I could never make out, for a greater piece of cruelty I never witnessed. End quote. Of course, Lord Cardigan was of no help either, as he was under his own orders from Raglan. He was to do only as ordered by Lucan, with no rebuttal, a fact that absolutely gnawed at him. It was under these conditions that the Light Brigade reached the outskirts of Sevastopol in late September. Raglan planned a complicated approach to take the city, but as they were working without good intelligence, he was unaware of what the Russians actually knew. The Russians holding the city truly believed at the time that the British and French would take advantage of the damage they had done at the River Alma and easily overcome them to take Sevastopol. Another critical opportunity lost. Rather than forge ahead to take the port, Raglan instead ordered a complex and risky movement around the city to the village of Balaclava on the south. The Allies laid siege upon Sevastopol with their ar artillery, but took no action beyond just bombarding the Russian fortifications. Because they never cut off supply routes to the city, the Russians took shelter and waited. And so it was that the Light Brigade prepared for Balaclava. The British camp was set up at the head of two valleys that formed a sort of V-shape. These were formed by a ridge on each side and one down the center. On the center ridge, known as the Causeway Heights, ran the main road that fed every scrap of supplies to the camp from the village several miles away at the coast. It was protected by a series of redoubts on each side, manned by Turkish soldiers. Before long, intelligence reports from multiple sources, had come into the camp at Balaclava, reporting that the Russians were putting together a plan to attack the British on the 25th of October. The inexperienced and cautious Raglan waited. The British forces grew sicker and more pitiful, and all the while, the enemy systematically assembled a massive force, 25,000 infantry, 3,400 cavalry and 2,300 artillerymen were in place by October 24th. And still, Raglan refused to take the possibility of attack seriously. The next day, October 25th, 1854, would see what the British would later call the Battle of Balaclava. 
four charges took place that day. Two Russian, one British, and one French. At 5 o'clock a.m., the Russians attacked the redoubts on the Causeway Heights. The Turkish put up a strong resistance for a couple of hours, but when they were pushed back from their posts, the British stepped in and resisted the advance with only two lines of foot soldiers. These men held their position, fighting uphill against a force that outnumbered them by many times. Raglan and the, there's no other word I can use but spectators, were able to watch all of this happen, and the only thing they could see through the dust and the smoke was the thin line of red uniforms showing the position of the infantry. This stunningly courageous and effective line of defense would later be known as the Thin Red Line. The second charge was not exactly intentional. A second arm of the Russian troops rode up onto the Causeway Heights only to encounter four regiments of the British Cavalry's heavy brigade, again numbering less than half the Russians. Even outnumbered and again fighting uphill, the British took advantage of the element of surprise. The heavier horses and larger men of the heavies engaged with all the frenzy of the British at their very best, and in only about five minutes, the Russians turned and withdrew. There weren't many casualties, the swords were not very sharp, and the Russian greatcoats were heavy, but the British were relentless. Again, as so many times before, their great bravery and fierce hand-to-hand fighting would go to waste. While Lord Cardigan could easily have rallied his brigade and pursued the fleeing enemy to seize the advantage and retake the heights, he committed to remain in place, seemingly to spite his commanding officers. In those days, they didn't know the phrase passive-aggressive, but that's probably a nice way to describe the Lord Cardigan. At 8.30 a.m., General Raglan called for two divisions of British infantry to march in from their encampment a few miles away to give support for the cavalry under attack. The infantry commanders insisted on finishing breakfast before they left. By the time they arrived, it would be too late. From his high location at the head of the two valleys, Raglan was in the position to see all of this action as it happened. The first charge in the South Valley to his right and the second incident on the heights. He could see the guns left in the redoubts by the routed Turkish. He could also see the guns set up by the Russians in the North Valley. A battery was established on the right of the valley on the slope of the Causeway Heights. Guns were stationed on the left side as well, but most ominously, and perhaps most obviously, a battery of eight artillery guns had been set up at the far end of the valley, over a mile away. The Russians wanted to ensure that they held the valley, and they set up guns on three sides so the Allies wouldn't dare to enter it. The brigadiers down the head of the valley could see little, if any, of this, so they couldn't easily interpret orders without clear explanation. Again, Raglan's lack of experience showed as he next gave a poorly worded order that was carried to Lucan by an aide-de-camp. Quote, 10 a.m., 
Cavalry is to advance and take advantage of any opportunity to recover the heights. They will be supported by infantry, which has been ordered. Uh, advance on two fronts. Lucan moved the light brigade into the entrance of the North Valley and held the heavy brigade at the entrance to the South Valley. He positioned himself midway between the two brigades and waited. End quote. The troops dismounted and waited for the infantry to arrive. They took out their pipes and prepared to light them. Raglan became impatient. He had given the order to advance, and he was annoyed that nothing was happening. His next order was dictated to General Airy, who handed the note to his own aide-de-camp, Captain Nolan. Quote, 10.45 a.m. Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy, and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Troop horse artillery may accompany. French cavalry is on your left. R. Airy, immediate. End quote. Nolan was one of the army's best horsemen and was surely given this order to carry because he would be able to make the best speed with it. However, it seems he was either not paying attention at the time, he wouldn't ordinarily be the one to carry this order from Raglan, or he received essentially no instruction with the written order, other than Ares' comment as he left, quote, Tell Lord Lucan the cavalry is to attack immediately. End quote. Fifteen minutes later, Nolan arrived at the front, found Lucan, and delivered the order, which didn't really make any sense to him at this point. From the bottom of the valley, Lucan couldn't see anything that was going on above him on the heights. He knew nothing of the purpose of the order. He couldn't even tell if the first order was connected to the second one, since the infantry had clearly never arrived, and there was no apparent relationship one to the other. It also didn't help at all that Nolan and Lord Lucan were also bitter rivals. Nolan seems to have reported that Raglan had ordered an immediate attack. When Lucan questioned where they were to attack, Nolan flung his arm widely. Quote, There, my lord, there is your enemy, there are your guns. End quote. Some observers said Nolan pointed at the battery at the far end, but considering that he had seen the guns being removed from the redoubts on the Causeway Heights, he may actually have been gesturing that way. He was, after all, carrying orders that seemed to him quite obvious, though he also hadn't even seen the first order. Lucan also despised Nolan and would have had no expectation that he could get any better information by questioning him further. So he didn't. Lucan rode across to Cardigan and communicated the order as he understood it. When Cardigan objected, it was obviously a formula for disaster, Lucan said, quote, I know it, but Lord Raglan would have it. End quote. Based on everything that had happened to this point, no options remained. Lucan and Cardigan believed that they were under orders to lead the entire cavalry into the valley, under artillery fire from both flanks, and to charge a battery of guns head-on at the end of a mile-long attack. Lord Lucan ordered the advance with five regiments of light cavalry. He himself would lead the heavy brigade in the rear to provide support after the light, br light brigade had silenced the guns. 
to a man, everyone in the cavalry knew full well what was about to happen, and it is to the credit of them all that they followed their orders to advance. At ten minutes after eleven in the morning, the cavalry advance began. It would be essential that the full force of the attack had to reach the guns all at once, or the impact of the charge would be wasted. And so, they began slowly. Now, we wouldn't recognize this today compared to what we see in the movies. An attack of this distance would happen at a steady pace. They begin at the walk, and once moving steadily, proceed to trot. They would continue at this pace until only 250 yards from the target, at which point they would move to the canter. The cavalry would only lower its weapons and charge at full gallop, not to exceed the pace of the slowest horse, in the last 40 or 50 yards of the attack, well within reach of the cannons. In this open, treeless valley, which was soft as it had recently been plowed, there was no echo. Indeed, there was no sound at all, beyond the squeaking of saddles, jingling of bits, and rattling of sabers in their sheaths as the light brigade moved off down the valley. The Russians were waiting to see what the British were about to do. The British were waiting for the first shots to be fired. It was only a few minutes after they began, perhaps a hundred or two hundred yards down the valley, when the battery on the left began to fire. The first man killed was Captain Nolan, who had delivered the order to Lucan. There is some question whether he may have been killed as he was trying to get Cardigan to turn the troops up toward the causeway, as though he knew what had been meant by the order and was trying, too late, to rectify the misdirection. He lost the opportunity, though, when a shell burst above him and a fragment went through his heart. As he released the reins, his horse turned sharply back to the right, and Nolan was flung to the ground. Within two minutes, it became apparent to General Raglan and the observers at the end of the valley that the cavalry had been misdirected. They were not going up onto the causeway heights. They were about to charge the guns at the far end of the valley, powerless and in disbelief. They had no choice but to stand and watch the horror unfold. The light cavalry brigade moved steadily down the valley, and once a sufficient distance had opened up, Lord Lucan gave the order for the heavies to advance. As the lights received the order to trot, Lucan had a challenge to keep his ranks closed as they had to let through the first wounded men returning and navigate around the dead men and horses in the field. They came under fire briefly from the guns on the left, although those were fairly quickly put out of action by a timely charge from the French. Without their help, losses would undoubtedly have been much worse. It was not long after this that Lucan reportedly said, quote, they have sacrificed the light brigade. They shall not have the heavy, if I can help it. End quote. There is no question that support from the heavies would have made all the difference in the outcome of the charge, though it would also have increased the losses of both men and horses. He halted the advance and turned the heavy brigade back to retreat. In Hell Riders, Terry Brighton constructs this story based heavily on the documented reports of survivors, 
He tells this section of the story through direct quotes, because no other words do quite as well. We will do the same, for the same reason. If you find this story compelling, I do encourage you to read more about it, because I'm only scratching the surface here. Quote, The Russian View. The gunners cheered as they realized that these insane cavalrymen were riding straight at the muzzles of their guns. As the enemy came within range, the order to fire was given. Private Albert Mitchell, 13th Light Dragoons. A corporal who rode the right was struck by a shot or shell full in the face, completely smashing it. His blood and brains bespattered us who rode near. His horse still went on with us. Troop Sergeant Major George Smith, 11th Hussars. The men hung well together, keeping in line and closing in their comrades, fell wounded or killed. Many riderless horses were now galloping along with us, forcing their way into the ranks and keeping their places as well as though their masters had still been on their backs. Many of these horses belonged to the first line, for now we frequently met with their lifeless bodies. Lord George Paget, 4th Light Dragoons. Bewildered horses uh, from the first line, riderless, rushed in upon our ranks on every state of mutilation, some with a limping gait that told too truly of their state. One incident struck me forcibly. The bearing of riderless horses in such circumstances, I was, of course, riding by myself and clear of the line, and for that reason was a marked object for the poor dumb brutes who were by this time galloping out in numbers like mad wild beasts. I remarked their eyes, betokening as keen a sense of the perils around them as we human beings experienced. Private John Whitehead, 4th Light Dragoons. I lost my poor horse in the charge. A shell caught her in the chest and killed her instantly. I shot right over her head. And my face, and I thank God the only harm that happened to me was that my bridge of my nose was broken. I lay behind my poor horse. Private William Pennington, 11th Hussars. A musket ball struck my mare's hind leg, lamed us so bad she became quite useless, but I felt strange reluctance to dismount. Black Bess had been the fastest mare in all the troop, hard-bred and hardy. She had borne campaigning well. A ball passed through my right leg. A shot from the left tilted my busby over my right ear, while Bess received a coup de grace, which brought us both to earth, although I was still astride the mare. Private James Whiteman, 17th Lancers. My horse made a, a tremendous leap in the air, and, though I know not what at. The smoke was so dense that I could not even see my arm before me. Then suddenly I was in the battery, and in the darkness there were these sounds of fighting and slaughter, and in this gloom we cut and thrust and hacked like demons. End quote. As the cavalry approached the battery, the smoke from the guns obscured the goal, and the various brigades began to lose direction. Some went to the left, and some went to the right, while some made the assault head on. If this had been done intentionally, it might have been an effective strategy because nobody was more surprised than the Russians to see their enemy break through. Once behind the guns, it was an absolute melee. 
as the British appeared out of the smoke, they created as much of a psychological effect as they had in the two defensive maneuvers earlier in the day. And even in much smaller numbers than the Russians, they were able to break up the ranks and a small number seized the advantage to push the defenders back to the river in their rear. It's clear that the soldiers riding forward believed that they would be successful because they truly thought that the heavy brigade was riding behind them. The Russians also expected reinforcements. But no, the heavies were back at the head of the valley, having been turned back by Lord Lucan at the outset. With only one bridge to cross the river, the Russians slowed to a stop, at which point they turned to realize they far outnumbered the British. A quick maneuver to put their lancers behind the oncoming charge left the few British trapped, at which point they realized their dilemma and turned themselves to retreat, making another assault on the Russian lances to return to the guns and head back to the safety of the British line. Of course, this retreat was on spent and injured horses through the same gauntlet they had run on the way down, soft, plowed, and blood-soaked footing, uphill over the dead bodies of horses and men under the same fire from both flanks. Those who still had mounts tried again to avoid being struck by the Russian guns. Unhorsed men tried to catch runaway horses to make a faster retreat. All of them fought off the Russians, who were harassing them on all sides with lances, sabers, and carbines. Those who were able to dragged themselves and their comrades through the fray. Those who were not kept still, hoping that the Russians looting the field would not find them and bayonet them as they lay. The first to return back were, of course, those who still had horses. Those on foot took longer. The entire operation had not taken more than 20 minutes. Of the 630 mounted cavalry who charged at Balaclava, 57 men were captured. 196 were wounded. And one in six, 110 men, were killed. But the larger toll was to their mounts. More than half of the horses who were mounted at 10.30 a.m., 362 horses of 630, did not survive the hour. Once they had passed the guns, the British didn't have the force to rout the Russians. But they did surely make an impact. The Russians never risked another encounter with the British cavalry for the rest of the war. Instead, the work was done by infantry. The last battle in the fall of 1854 was at Inkerman on November 5th. Again, the Allies proved to be valiant fighters. Though a wildly superior force at dawn, by the end of day, the Russians had taken six times the Allied casualties, and finally, after eight hours of intense infantry fighting, it was said that they seemed to melt from the field of battle. Already, the British had lost many thousands of men and horses to disease or wounds inflicted in battle. This situation was made worse by the location of their hospital, four days' travel by ship to Turkey in the city of Scutari. And that said, it was still a weak medical facility. It wasn't until early November, around the same time as the Battle of Inkerman, that a nurse from London named Florence Nightingale arrived with 38 other nurses and began instituting some regimen of hygiene 
and conscientious medical care. The Allies also faced trouble with the weather. It began with a hurricane that descended on Balaclava Harbor on November 14th. As many as 35 Allied ships went down in the storm, taking with them ammunition, winter clothing, medicine, and food for both humans and animals. This loss was only the beginning because in the coming winter months, most of the supplies that had been salvaged would either rot in the port, be lost in transit by overturned wagons, or delayed by the weakened and dying mules and horses that struggled to make the miles-long trip uphill to camp through the mud. Their downhill journey was no easier as they carried the sick and injured en route to Skatari. With their supplies compromised, the men had little to eat but a small amount of greasy pork. Any grass had long since been turned to mud, so the horses resorted to eating each other's tails. All of them were starving and freezing. The men were consigned to make these long journeys to the port on foot during the day and were generally sent to keep guard in the trenches five nights a week. It was not unusual for them to fall asleep or even freeze to death there before being discovered by the next shift arriving in the morning. Those who survived this usually suffered frostbite, which took fingers, feet, hands, and legs. According to the Russians, it was a real Russian winter. By the winter of 1854 and 55, the siege of Sevastopol had degenerated into a grinding war. The Allied armies were entrenched around the fortifications and the Russians within. But still, the Allies allowed supplies to reach the city. Russian stories of this time sound a bit like they were on holiday, with idle time spent in town or at the beach. It was not until the second year of the war, after the river crossings, after Balaclava, after Inkerman, and after the winter, that the Allies finally received the materials and equipment needed to build rail transport so they could supply their troops, and finally were able to cut off the Russian supply lines. Once this was completed, the Russians surrendered. Two years after war had broken out, the Treaty of Paris was signed to end the Crimean War in March of 1856. This agreement settled Turkey's independence, demilitarized the waters of the Black Sea and the Danube River, and returned to the Ottoman Empire those states along the western coast of the Black Sea that had been the subjects of Russia's original invasion. Today, this region makes up modern-day Romania. While these concessions effectively cost Russia any gains it might have made around the war, it was only a few decades before their naval ships returned to the Black Sea. Though the region of Crimea has been a contested possession for centuries, there was at least relative peace for a time after this war. However, even before the Great War tore up Europe, and before the Russian Civil War was to tear this country apart once again, Thomas Edison would begin cleverly transferring a series of flashing images onto rolls of celluloid so that they could be reproduced and displayed nearly anywhere in the world. The charge at Balaclava was a popular subject among early filmmakers, and soon we would see the glory days of the Hollywood studios when Warner Brothers would bring this grand tale of the Valley of Death to the silver screen. By that time, the horse was no longer galloping toward the guns against live ammunition in service of a colonial imperative. Oh no, he was engaged 
as a tool for entertainment instead, a more or less harmless occupation. I described to you earlier how Warner Brothers Studios had invested a large amount of money in 1936 to create a thrilling blockbuster film about this legendary charge. But in that era between the Great Depression and World War II, it was sadly still common for animals to find themselves at the mercy of commercial interests. It took the violent abuse of over a hundred horses in the making of a box office hit and the death of one in five of them before it would get better. Years later, British director Tony Richardson would make another version with the same title. This was in 1968 during the Vietnam War, and this film starred Trevor Howard and Vanessa Redgrave in a marginally satirical anti-war picture based on the book The Reason Why. It wasn't a great commercial success, but has developed a bit of a cult following since. Now, I've seen both the 1936 and the 1968 productions of The Charge of the Light Brigade, and they are very different films. Not just because they tell distinctly different stories, but because they take such different viewpoints on war, and because the productions are made in such very different ways. In the 1936 production, leading man Errol Flynn was obligated to lead a charge of uniformed riders through a valley to a sadly certain fate. He knew that his horse would make it to the end of the valley in fine condition because he was playing the hero who had to get to the end. What he also knew was that there were 125 stunt riders behind him mounted on horses that were pre-planned to fall during the charge. Each of these horses was equipped with something known as a running W device, which pulls the horse's front feet out from under it, causing it to crash to its knees unexpectedly. I found multiple sources to say that as many as 25 of the horses who were tripped during filming on this set either died during their falls or were euthanized because of their injuries. The film's director, Michael Curtiz, was said to be so indifferent to the carnage incurred that Flynn came to despise him, and even though they would work together again on future films, would only speak to Curtiz when he absolutely had to. The 1936 production of The Charge of the Light Brigade was one of the first films that led to the American Humane Association intervening to ensure that animals were treated humanely during film production. Contrast this piece with its namesake, made 30 years later. The 1968 movie does not employ trip devices. Rather, by this time, filmmakers were using something called a falling horse. This is a horse trained and hired specifically to fall down. He or she undergoes a long and careful training process that teaches the horse to do this. The rider cues the horse and it falls onto its side like a stuntman. It doesn't fall on its knees or its neck. Today's rules require animals to be trained specifically for any tasks they're being asked to do. The ground is softened and any hard objects are removed before a horse is asked to fall. Only trained falling horses may be asked to fall. Additional tricks of multiple cameras and skillful editing, nowadays even computer-generated content, allow an exciting action scene to be created with much less impact on the animals. It's worth adding at this point, that even as values improve around production, the popular appetite for animal cruelty in films, even simulated, is waning. 
1968 production that we're talking about, even as it is, with a very different approach to the action, was later shortened by several seconds when it was released on video. It was shortened to remove the footage of horse falls. Gradually, the 20th century saw increasing concern about animal welfare. In 1916, American Humane created Red Star Animal Relief and rescued 68,000 wounded horses on the battles of world, battlefields of World War I. They gained open access to movie sets using animals in 1941, and by 1951, a stamp of approval was awarded to films committed to humane practices in filming. It's easy to see how our partnership with horses is at odds with our ability to care for them and how this struggle has played out over time. For centuries, on the battlefield, and more recently, on the film set. We can look back on 200 years of Russo-Turkish wars with the horse as the essential weapon, unrelenting in spite of treaty after treaty promising settlement. We can look at the Great War in which the horse's role was finally outstripped by military technology, and he was sent off to act in the movies. But we can also look back to the Russian Civil War, World War II, the Cold War, and what we see on the news today. In many ways, this story is stuck on repeat, illustrated only with a picture of the same map, boundaries drawn and redrawn in blood. While the human instinct to be territorial has not changed, the last century has at the very least given better prospects to our friend the horse. And today, if you stick around to read the closing credits at the end of American-made movies that include animals, you'll see a simple statement issued by American Humane that reads, No animals were harmed in the making of this film. Until next time, please remember that the thing that makes a good podcast great is more listeners. So take a moment to tell someone else the old-fashioned way that you are enjoying our show. That is how we continue to grow, after all. And thanks for that. If you listen to our show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash into the mouth of hell. If you're new to the show, I'm really glad to hear it. Follow us for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com for links to the various ways to listen. This story has been written by me with the help of Paul Kamen, who prepared the visual presentation for our live show. Brian Hotailing has accompanied me in telling this story. And our theme music is Shake It and Break It, performed by John Dressel. Credit goes to Ricky Bloxham for the visual design of our graphics and our website. And Bob Sambianti has given the technical assistance that made today's live event possible. This has been a part of the Steamtober series of events put together by Post University's School of Arts and Sciences. And of course, this would not be a story without someone to tell it to. So thanks to you for giving us your ear space. I'll see you next time.